Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 79, and we're going to be talking about Wee, Tinkle, Piddle, Passwater. That's right, this is the urine episode. I know you've all been waiting for that. We'll also be talking about oil changes, a tale from the road involving an unfortunate set of windshield wipers, and a place to visit that has a sunken 727? Hello everyone, welcome back once again, and I am very happy to be back in Chicago. First, let me apologize for the sound quality of last week's episode. I took a chance by recording the episode on a ship, and I was on the balcony of my cabin, and I had no idea just how loud the ocean was. And when I went to edit the episode, I was unable to reduce the ocean noise very much because, again, it was a similar frequency to my voice. So I hope you'll forgive me, and this time I'm back in my studio and everything should be normal. Now, for those of you who are curious about the cruise, again, this is a van life podcast, and I think I've stretched the comparisons between vans and ships as much as I possibly can. But at the end of this episode, I will talk about the cruise for those of you who are curious, but I don't want to interrupt those of you who are not. That said, let's get right into the main topic here, which is urine. Yes, urine. This is not my favorite topic to talk about. However, it is an important topic when you are living or traveling in a vehicle. If you are sleeping in a vehicle, this issue will come up. What do you do with urine? I have seen many, many different approaches to dealing with urine. It runs the gamut from the truck driver with the apple juice bottle, which is a an oldie but a goodie, to composting toilets, to evaporative systems. And in fact, there used to be a system on old RVs that would let urine drip out of the vehicle onto the muffler where it would instantly evaporate and get cooked, basically. And the idea was that as you drove down the road, you could simply cook your problems away. I imagine that did not smell very good for the cars behind you, and I don't think that system is available anymore. Okay, so what do you do? First, let's talk about why you have to do anything. After all, we live in a society where it is completely reasonable to walk your dog and have it pee in the street. That's accepted. Yet, if we see a person do it, at least in the U.S., that is severely frowned upon. Although, if you travel enough internationally, you will see that the level of frowning varies depending on the culture. So, what's the big deal? Well, first, there's the obvious that it is an excretory function, right? Urine could possibly spread disease, at least that's the thought. And yes, a lot of people think that urine is sterile, and it is so long as you don't have an infection and that urine is in your bladder. The problem is that when the urine comes out of your bladder, it loses its sterility and thus can become a vector for some sorts of disease. But really, honestly, disease is not the problem with urine. The problems are more related to odor. That's really your biggest issue, and concentration. Urine is filled with salts and other things that in large concentrations kill vegetation. So while you might be able to, you know, take care of business next to a pine tree in the forest without any ill effect, 
Imagine if you did that every day, or if you and 40 of your closest friends did that every day, and you get to see why there is an issue. And that issue is that we need to take care of our urine responsibly. So how do we do that? One way we don't do that is to install a urinal in your van that just drains directly out the van. And this goes for gray water too. In fact, gray water and urine should have a similar value in your mind and how you dispose of them. I've seen a lot of van designs where clever men will build this device out of PVC and a funnel and they can just pee into it and then the urine will just come out the bottom of the van and voila, problem solved, right? No, because I've also stayed in Walmarts and rest areas that smell terrible because people are just pouring urine in the parking lot. Folks, if you pour urine on asphalt, do you know what happens? It evaporates, and all those salts and other smelly substances stay there, and then the parking lot starts to smell bad. And then the store manager notices this and puts up a sign that says no overnight parking. And we don't want that. So this is an issue that affects everybody. Do not drain urine directly out of your vehicle. I don't think it's responsible. And while it may be convenient for you, for the van life community as a whole, it's a real problem. If you are in a position where you can't get to a toilet, you can use a little portable urinal. They sell these things at every pharmacy in America. There are these bottles especially shaped to use as a urinal. They work great but you fill them up pretty quickly. And of course you can make your own. A very popular thing to use is a detergent bottle because there's no risk that anybody's going to drink the detergent bottle. Or for those who'd like to disguise it a bit more, Gatorade bottles are handy because their mouths are big enough to allow certain parts of the anatomy to fit better for some people. And then, oh wait, are we ignoring the fact that men and women are built a little bit differently and that this is a completely different issue for women? Yeah, men have it easy in this regard. We have retractable equipment that allows us to deal with this issue in a variety of positions, sitting or standing or laying down, whereas women don't. Now, there are wonderful devices that help women in this regard. One is called the Shiwi. You can Google Shiwi and come, it'll, and that's W-E-E, and it will come up with a bunch of different ways to do this. But some women don't like them. And other women say, you don't need that. You just need a wider mouth, like something like a mayonnaise jar. Okay, find the container that works for you. One container that seems to work for everybody is a plastic Folgers five pound instant coffee container. It has a very wide mouth, it seals tightly and can be disposed of when it's full. But there are other clever ways to deal with this. If you have a composting toilet, you are already separating urine from other waste and you have basically a pee bottle. Some people have started calling this yellow water. Like we've got black water, gray water and a yellow water now. You can set up your own yellow water tank. If you like the idea of having the urinal in there, great. Just have it lead to a tank. That's all. You can then deal with the tank at the same time you're dealing with your black water and gray water that you probably already have. And while we're talking about that, why not just have it go into the gray water? I know this isn't a comfortable thing to talk about and people like don't like this, but is there anything wrong with peeing into a sink? 
I would argue that yes, there you probably shouldn't pee into sinks because people use sinks for a variety of reasons. And honestly, in my van, that would be quite the feat given how things are different heights and angles and all of that. So you can rest assured that I have never peed into the sink of my van. But using the gray water to store urine, I don't see a problem with it because gray water and urine need to be disposed of in similar ways. You could have a separate inlet going into your gray water tank or you could simply empty whatever your yellow water tank is into your sink which would then add it to the gray water tank. And now think about this. You're like, oh gross, there's urine in your sink. Well, there's a lot more dangerous stuff than that that goes into your sink. Honestly, if you brush your teeth in your sink and you spit into your sink, that's worse. It's worse. There's more germs and more potentially dangerous germs that way. Bottom line is clean your sink often, but combining your urine with your gray water is a viable solution. What about odor? Well, yes, urine has an odor, more or less, depending on your genetics and things like that, and the amount of time you store it. Because while you see urine is sort of sterile and then it isn't when it comes out and all that, urine is nutritive, which means things like to grow in it. It is a growth medium, and those things are very stinky things. So you will have an odor problem. One easy way to solve that is to just not keep it very long. Gray water and urine are pretty easy to get rid of. You can dump them in any dump station or any toilet. And we'll get maybe a little too personal here, but hey, that's what van life is about in some regards. If I'm out in the woods and I have to pee, I have no problems with just removing myself from the trail, staying away from bodies of water, and relieving myself where I happen to be. I don't think that's a problem. That amount of urine isn't going to be a major impact on anything. Honestly, there's coyotes doing the same thing, and there's more of them, probably. In the van, I have a urinal container, a container just for urination, and I empty it in toilets when I can. That's basically how I handle it. Now, I have been in a case where I've needed to add it to the gray water, and it has been fine. There is really no issue with adding it to the gray water. All of my gray water goes into either a dump station or a toilet or an outhouse or something similar to that, and that hasn't been a problem anyway. For odor, I still use the mouthwash trick. And if you haven't heard me talk about this before, this, this works surprisingly well. Just use mouthwash. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to add mouthwash. Just use it. And the mouthwash that you spit down the drain does an amazing job of deodorizing the gray water with or without urine. Now, if there ever is an odor problem, and I really haven't had one, to be honest, a little bit of bleach can go a long way to helping. But there is some concern about mixing urine with bleach that it might produce chloramine gas, which isn't quite as bad as it sounds. If you've ever been near a swimming pool and you smell chlorine, you're not actually smelling chlorine. You're smelling chloramine, which is a breakdown product of chlorine. <laughs> it means you need to add more chlorine, which is odd, but that's how it works in pools. Anyway, treat urine like gray water. That is the bottom line, and you will be fine. You won't have any problems, and you will be a responsible citizen. Tech Talk. Let's talk about oil changes. I'm old enough to remember a time before Jiffy Lubes and Quick Lubes and all those fast places that change your oil. And when they came on the scene, which was, I think, back in the 70s or 80s, 
they started putting little stickers on your car saying when it was time to change your oil. And that was so nice of them. But if you noticed, that sticker was always within three months or 3,000 miles. And if you looked in your owner's manual, you would see that that didn't line up with any of the numbers the manufacturer gave you. In fact, that only lined up with the numbers for taxis and other vehicles that were getting severe use. Now, folks, uh, <clears throat> now, does it do any harm to change your oil too often? Absolutely not. If you change your oil every single day, your engine will be quite happy but you will be wasting an incredible amount of money and oil. So how often should you change your oil? Well, from all the research I can find and everything all the experts say, it boils down to this. Do what the owner's manual says. The engineers who designed your engine have a recommended time interval for which you should change your oil. That's it. And you may want to do it more often if you are driving... Under severe conditions, whether it be at a lot of city driving or for extended periods of time, or if you're idling a lot, that's a big one because every hour that your van idles equals about 30 miles. That's, a, that's for diesel engines. That's a number that's kind of been thrown around. So you will want to change your oil more often. But the folks who say that they change their oil every 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 miles when the owner's manual actually says something like 7,500 miles... They're not hurting anything, but they're probably being a bit wasteful. That said, what kind of oil should you use? Well, again, go to your owner's manual. It knows best. Whatever kind of oil it says in there is what you should use. And these days, with the way engines somehow have plastic and nylon parts in them, using the wrong oil can actually be damaging. Okay, what about synthetic versus conventional? Either will lubricate your engine just fine, but synthetic oils last longer and are less likely to break down under certain circumstances. So synthetic oils are better, but are they worth the expense? If you have an engine that doesn't need synthetic oil, and usually it's the very small engines that require synthetic, you can use conventional and it's just fine. I tend to use synthetic because the vehicles I've owned have had very small engines. In fact, the two vehicles I owned before my van only had three cylinders, <laughs> so those were very small. They basically had motorcycle engines in them, and I used synthetic. That was what was recommended by the manufacturer. There is a ton of information online about oil changes and oil additives and special oil filters like K&N filters. And they'll, you know what? Honestly, nearly all that stuff is bogus. What your owner's manual says is what you should follow. That's my opinion. I am not a car expert, but I have been paying attention to this issue for at least three decades now, and all the experts who don't have a vested interest in the industry come down on the same point. Trust your owner's manual. Tales from the Road. So I was not the world's best student. I was actually one of the worst students. And even though I went to some fancy schools and ended up graduating cum laude from Georgetown, I was not a good student, at least in, not until I was an adult. As a kid, I was terrible, especially in middle school, especially in the eighth grade. But I was trying. I would get these spurts where I really wanted to be a good student, and I would give it a shot. And one of the things I was terrible at was writing assignments. Oh, you need to do a two-page essay, and it's due Friday, and then, you know, I would 
actually get up early Friday morning and write the paper before class. But there was this one time that I did it right. I actually made an outline and wrote the story on Tuesday and then edited it on Wednesday and re-edited it. And then Friday, I actually had a really nice piece of work. It was even handwritten neatly, which is something that I typically can't do. And I thought I was turning over a new leaf. I thought this was great. This was going to be the start of my new career as a good student. I used to walk to school about a mile back in those days, which wasn't unusual, and it was fine. And I had a book bag, and I was concerned that if I put this pristine piece of work into my book bag, that it would have gotten all wrinkled and crumpled, and all my textbooks are smaller than a letter size piece of paper. So I decided to just carry it. I'm going to carry this precious object with me. English was my first class of the day, so I could turn it in and it would be wonderful. And as I'm carrying it down the street, a gust of wind comes and blows the paper out of my hands. And you're probably thinking, oh, I know where this story's going. It landed in a puddle or a dog ate it. Oh, no, 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 nothing so prosaic. My paper flew into the air, did a few loops, and then landed squarely on the windshield of a passing car lodging itself under the windshield wiper. And I saw this and thought, oh, great. My paper is saved. It didn't get run over. It didn't land in a puddle. And then my heart sank as I saw the car continue to drive because apparently the driver was unconcerned that my homework was now blocking their view and they didn't think to stop. They just kept driving. And my perfect homework went to work or someplace else, and I never saw it again. I finished the walk to school, went to class, went to the English teacher, and told her this story. And as you might imagine, she did not believe me, and thus ended my very, very short-lived career as a good student. Product review. So I have this weird thing where I like to find ways to cook microwave foods in the van without a microwave. <laughs> I know, I don't know why. I just think it's kind of cool. Like, hmm, this can only be cooked in a microwave. There's only microwave directions. Surely I can find a way to beat this. It's like a challenge. I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense. But one of the things that I have done this successfully with is called completes. Now that's spelled C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T-S. And these are by Hormel, and they look like little TV dinners, but they're kept on the shelf. They're not frozen. And they're actually really great for van life because you have a complete meal in a container, doesn't need to be refrigerated, and it's very easy to heat up. It doesn't take long at all. Now you're supposed to microwave them for 60 seconds. But if you think about it, these things are already cooked. You're just heating it up and you can heat it up any way you want. Heck, you could probably leave it in the sun long enough and it would get hot enough to eat. What I typically do is I'll empty the container into a pot, cook the pot on the stove, and then dump it back into the container because it's kind of like a plate. And then I have a meal and I will use these for times when I'm driving all day and pulling into a campsite or a Walmart parking lot at 10 o'clock at night and I don't feel like doing a lot of prep and cooking. I just want to eat and go to bed. Quality-wise, they're not great. I'll be completely honest. They are really not that great. 
but for convenience and for getting a hot meal in you quick, they're pretty good. They've got mac and cheese and turkey and potatoes and beef and potatoes, very basic things. Nothing at all healthy. I'm sure the sodium levels are through the roof. But you know, it's not a bad idea to have a couple of these in your van just in case. You can treat them kind of like emergency food. And they're not very expensive. They're usually two to three dollars a piece and I tend to only buy them when they're on sale. Here's my unbiased review of these things. I think they can be useful in some circumstances, but I sure wouldn't want to live on them for a whole week. Again, that is Completes, C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T-S, by Hormel. And they're probably available in your local grocery store, kind of where they keep the craft dinner. That's usually where I find them. A place to visit. Okay, this is a little bit of a strange place, so I'm going to try to explain this the best I can. In southern Illinois, very southern Illinois, there's a place called Mermit Springs. That's M-E-R-M-E-T Springs. And Mermit Springs is famous because it has become a popular dive site. And by a dive site, I don't mean it's a place where you just like jump into a lake. No, I mean scuba diving. It's one of the country's premier scuba diving sites. And it's in southern Illinois and not even in a big lake or anything. What it is, is it's an old quarry that was abandoned and filled with water. So it's actually very deep, and they teach people how to scuba dive here. But that's not all. You can learn how to scuba dive in Lake Michigan, after all. No, the owner of this place decided there should be something interesting at the bottom of this quarry, and, um, and so he put things in there. Things like a bike trail. Now, that's not a trail where you ride a bike. It's a trail of bikes each with its own poem, or maybe an ambulance, or uh, an F-150, or fire engine, um, an entire coal car from a train derailment that happened nearby, um, a couple of Cessnas, you know, normal stuff. Oh, yeah, and there's an entire Boeing 727 down there. <laughs> And it's rigged up so that you can go inside it. It has multiple entrance and exit points, and it's been made as safe as possible. At any rate, you may not think of southern Illinois as a place to go scuba diving, but you should, because Mermit Springs has some of the most uh, interactive diving you're likely to encounter, and you don't even have to get on a boat to do it. So I'll have a link in the show notes. I actually arranged for an event there with Atlas Obscura many years ago, and I uh, talked with the owner, and super nice folks there. Really, really accommodating, nice people. So I can recommend Mermit Springs, even though I myself have never dived there. But again, link in the show notes. It's just mermitsprings.com. If you're looking for an unusual place to practice your scuba skills, head to Southern Illinois. Resource recommendation. So let's say you have something that you want to glue to something else. Let's say you want to glue leather to brick or fabric to metal, like, say, the wall of a van. Well, there's a website that uses a little bit of AI to help you figure out the best glue to use to glue this to that. And that's actually the name of the website. It's called thistothat.com. And it's very simple website. There's just like a little picture there and then uh, some drop-down boxes. And it says, attach this to that. And you fill out the drop-down box. For example, if you want to attach styrofoam to rubber, which is 
odd, but maybe you do, press the Let's Glue button and it will tell you what to use. And in this case, you should use LePage's Bulldog Grip PL200, which is the strongest bond. But it's even a little bit smarter than that because it realizes that that's not a very common adhesive. So it says you can also use 3M77, which until recently was available at every Home Depot. If you're not aware, there's a nationwide shortage of spray adhesives along with a lot of other things. But let's pretend it's not the way. This to that is a super handy site for a quick and easy way to Find out how, what glues to use, basically. What if you want to glue plastic to glass? I don't know why you'd want to do that either, but let's say you did. Well, let's hit the Let's Glue button, and it says you should use Loctite Improve. But you need a UV light for that stuff to work. And so let's say you don't have access to that. You can also use Household Goop. Or if you don't have that, and you're a little worried about toxicity, because the stronger the glue, often the higher the toxicity... You can also use hot glue or something called weld bond. Anyway, lots of fun stuff to play with here. Definitely a site to be familiar with as you start gluing things to your van. And I'll have a link in the show notes again, but it's thistothat.com. You should be able to remember that. Okay, Q&A. Well, this time the Q&A is simply going to be, how was the cruise? Now, if you don't care about cruising, you may consider this the end of the episode. But for those of you who are curious about what it was like to go on the first cruise from North America during a pandemic, I'll fill you in a little bit on how this went. Uh, We were on Celebrity Millennium, which is an older ship in Celebrity's fleet, but was recently refurbished. So it was sort of like a new ship. And uh, it was very, very empty. There were only about 600 passengers And there were 750 crew. There's usually about 2,100 passengers. So space was not an issue. There were no lines ever for anything. So that was very nice. And we were treated very, very nicely. In fact, it kind of got tiresome to walk down one of the hallways or into the buffet and have so many crew members just kind of fawn over you saying, oh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for joining us and you know all that kind of stuff. And, and, and honestly, it was lovely because these poor folks, the vacationers haven't been able to go on a cruise for over a year. Oh my. But the poor folks working on the ship hadn't been able to work in over a year. So it was a really big deal to them. Now, on board the ship, it was pretty much a normal cruise. There were no masks because everybody was vaccinated. There really wasn't a need for masks. And there weren't even that many special protocols on board. All the crew wore masks. They were also 100% vaccinated, but the cruise line figured that people would be more comfortable if the crew wore masks, so they did, and, you know, that's fine. The buffet was open, with the only difference that they served you rather than you served yourself. All the restaurants were normal. The bars were normal. It was just a regular old cruise. In the ports, uh, depending on the port, things were a little different. For example, in Barbados, we had to take a tour. We weren't allowed to wander the island ourselves. But in Aruba and Curacao, they didn't care as much. We were allowed to wander. But on shore, we did have to wear our masks and do social distancing because in these countries, the vaccine isn't as widespread as it is in the U.S. And while you might argue that we're not the people they have to worry about, They couldn't create separate rules just for cruise passengers, especially since there were so few of us and it was the first one, which was fine. Now, there was an event you may have seen on the news that our ship had positive COVID cases. (gasps) 
Oh, no. Yes, we did have two people who tested positive on the ship. You see, they were testing us on the ship. So they had their own testing center so that we could get tested before we went home. And two of those people who got tested did come back positive. Now, it's a little funny that the two people who tested positive were both in the same cabin. Odds of a breakthrough happening and both people being in the same cabin are pretty low. So I don't exactly know if maybe they didn't get properly vaccinated or not. I never will know. But I can tell you that this was not the big deal you might think it was. It was not an outbreak. The cruise went on as normal. Nothing changed. It was just those two people were taken and put into quarantine and given all kinds of stuff like free internet and, and room service and all that. And folks who had traveled with them were also temporarily quarantined until they had a negative test. And that was it. Whatever they said on the news, honestly, we couldn't see much news on the ship, so we don't actually know what they said. But it, it basically showed that it worked. It showed that a vaccinated cruise worked just fine. And even with those two cases, it really didn't impact anything else. So is it safe to travel right now? Well, I will tell you that if you are vaccinated, I think you can feel confident taking a fully vaccinated cruise. There are some states like Texas and Florida who are trying to prevent you from being safe in this way. I don't know what's up with that, but I would certainly go on another vaccinated cruise in a heartbeat without any other problems, given that I am vaccinated. So that was basically it. But for those who are curious about what it was like being back on the first cruise, it was fine. We're glad we went. In fact, we booked another cruise for November. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to this episode 79. Quick note that I did mail out everyone's stickers. So if you asked for a sticker and you don't receive it in the next couple weeks, please contact me again because something went wrong and I'll send it again. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Louisa May Alcott. I'm not afraid of storms, for I am learning how to sail my ship. <laughs>